Second Peter chapter one. Now the thought may have occurred to you, since well, this is the third week that we're using to look at these opening four verses, that our study of Second Peter is probably going to be our agenda for the next three years. And, and I just want to say we're not going to spend quite as long on every portion. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which portions we will or won't spend that much time on, but it's not all going to be that way, so uh, it's not going to be a three- or four-year study, Lord willing, at this point. Uh, So uh, just a a note of, if that's a note of encouragement you need, uh, then that's an encouragement. If it's like, oh, shucks, we wanted to get, you know, do it the other way, then it's like, well, suck it up. Let's just keep keep going, then. So open your scriptures to 2 Peter Chapter 1, I'm going to read again these opening four verses to this epistle. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who has spoken. We thank you, as we always do, of your mercy and grace, not only in speaking, but in superintending that process through your Holy Spirit to ensure that what you've said was written down for us accurately and transmitted to us so that here in our day and age and time and history, we can study what you've said. More than that, We thank you that your Holy Spirit carries out an illumining ministry for us so that we can truly understand what you've said. Understand it in terms of what it means and how it's meant to work out in our lives and through that same Holy Spirit finding enablement as we seek to move forward in obedience to it. So Lord, in this time that we have together in this day studying your God-breathed words, through your Spirit would you make your word plain to us. Apply it in the clear way to each of our hearts and give us an alertness of mind and undivided mind that we might be truly able to listen to you. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick review. As we got into these verses in verse 1, we were learning about the fact that all of the redeemed have a faith of equal standing, is the way the ESV translates it. The Greek word isotomos, which means equal in honor, equal in privilege. Another way to frame it is this, that all of the redeemed are actually on the same level before God. We all stand right only because the righteousness of Christ has been granted to us. That's what justification is all about. No one stands before God except on the basis of the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have responded in repentance and faith have been granted that righteousness, and therefore there aren't differing levels. 
with some people on sort of an elite level and some people on not an elite level. Uh, none of us stands before him on any other basis than what Jesus did. And it's certainly not tied in any sense to what we're doing. Does that mean that what we're doing makes no difference? Well, it doesn't make any difference in salvation. It makes a whole lot of difference in terms of pleasing the Lord. It makes a whole lot of difference in terms of accountability or answerability for the fruitfulness of our life as a redeemed believer. But nobody stands before God based on what they were doing. No one was saved by what they were doing except in repentance and faith. Then no one stands before God based on what they're doing. It's all rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we were reminded and taught that as redeemed people standing right now before God, we now have the opportunity for a growing personal relationship with God. What the ESV translates as a knowledge of God. We talked about the fact that in the Greek language, there's really two different words dominantly used, translated by the English word know or knowledge. One of those words, adon or oida, refers to the idea of factual knowledge, objective sort of facts about God. And there's times when that word means, you know, we're learning some objective facts from God. What uh, the theologians call propositional revelation. God has given us truth, and we can learn the facts. The other Greek word are forms of the word gnosis, epinosis, which refers to knowledge in the sense of experiential relational knowledge. And we've talked often about that, the difference between saying, I know these facts about a person, or I know that person. And when we use the word know in the sense of I know that person, it means we have some relational connection. We've come to experientially, relationally have a connectedness. Both words are good biblical words. In this case, he's using epinosis, which is referring to a deepening relationship. The wonder of salvation is that you and I now have the possibility of a deepening relationship with God. An unsaved person has no relationship with God, has no possibility of relationship with God, and they face an eternity cut off from God. But when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, not only is salvation now possible, but relationship with the God who created us for relationship with Him actually becomes a possibility. And we talked about the fact that one of the sad things is that it's very possible to be redeemed, but in practice have very little knowing going on in terms of deepening in relationship with the Lord. Last time, as we were in verse 3, we were talking about the promise that God gives us that He has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness. And again, He's talking to the redeemed now, not the unredeemed. He's granted to the unredeemed what they need to be saved, which is to repent and believe in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But for the redeemed, he says, I have granted you everything you need, all things, uh, panta in the Greek, meaning something without exceptions. We have everything we need for life and godliness, everything that pertains to life, the Greek word zoe. And in the Greek language, zoe refers to a fullness of life in contrast to bios, which simply means physical existence. God is offering us and gives us what we need to have fullness of life. Think of John 10.10, I came that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. That's the Greek word zoe. And God says, I've given you everything now that you need in Christ for fullness of life. For life that is truly life. 
That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Zoe. And also, he's given us everything we need for godliness. Eusebia in the Greek, which means a piety. A, it, it describes an individual who is living with a God-awareness. It's evident in their life that they are connected. They have a God-awareness in their life. That's what godliness means. Of course, it shows up in holiness and righteous living and so forth. But somebody can try to be holy or maybe try to be righteous without much God-awareness. Their life does not reflect that, that pious, devoted connectedness to God. And God says, I've given you everything you need for godliness, not just righteousness, but godliness, so that you can be a person living with a God-awareness. And he says... Two things tied to all of that is that, number one, you need to be growing in your knowledge of me. Uh, And then secondly, you need to be drawing on my power, the Greek dunamis. God's power is needed. A redeemed believer cannot gain life and godliness by gritting their teeth and trying to draw on some inner strength. We gain life and godliness as a believer because we learn to draw on the indwelling Holy Spirit's strength. And it's in that discovery of his power that life deepens and our relationship with the Lord intensifies and our fruitfulness in life magnifies. Well, that's where we were. Well, why did it take so long to get there? Not totally sure, but that's, that's where we are. Now, today in verse 4, we discover yet a third, not just deepening a relationship, not just drawing on the enabling power of the Spirit, but we discover a third key to what God has provided for us for this life and godliness. And make no mistake, it's His intention that we be as redeemed people discovering all that life and godliness is about. That's what He wants for us. And there's a third key to it. And that third key, as we see in verse 4, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through these. So you say it's the life that he's given us, the indwelling Holy Spirit that he's given us, and precious and great promises that he's given us. Working together. So combining a growing personal relationship, a drawing upon the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, in power, in a reading and studying and obeying of his word. It is there that we operationalize, nice engineering word, operationalize the outcomes of life and godliness. Clearly, as you read that, God's word is intended to be central to life and godliness. He's granted us these precious and great promises. Brothers and sisters, there's no need for God to grant us something that we don't really need. But if he's granted something to us, we darn better well be taking advantage of it. Because it's not like he grants us five options, all of which will work. Uh, No, no, he has a plan, and when he grants us something, he says, it's this or nothing. You can't grow apart from this. You can't grow apart from the enabling Holy Spirit who's indwelling you as a redeemed believer. You cannot grow apart from the life I give you and deepening in relationship. You cannot grow apart from my precious and great promises. They're all necessary to see the growth in our lives. How central do you see the precious and great promises of God to be? 
in your own understanding of the Christian life and the Christian walk. Well, let's look at these and get into them. He says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. The importance of God's precious and great promises. Understand the structure here, the clear implication, is that precious and great promises are indispensable. And the only place we're going to find precious and great promises is in God's written word, that superintended work that I was praying about at the beginning, where God, who has breathed out his truth, as 2 Timothy 3 puts it, has superintended the writing of that truth down so that we have an accurate way to get at it and to read it. That's where we find the precious and great promises. Now, why do I make a point of that? Because in our culture, and sadly, even in our Christian community, that point needs to be made. Listen, the precious and great promises of God are not going to be found because somebody who seems spiritual said, this is a promise God has for you. But a lot of people's understanding of God's promises is almost 100% tied to what somebody told them, not God's word. You follow? So we don't find those promises because somebody sounds convincing who has said, oh, these are, the, these are the promises of God. And by the way, these precious and great promises are not found in your own wishful thinking. There's a lot of things we want God to promise. And sometimes we can even get ourselves convinced he's promising that to me. The only thing you know God's promising you is this. I mean, that's it. You, you don't have any place else beside that. You say, well, I just felt so strongly convicted about it. Well, I think I'll trust revelation rather than your sense of confirmation. Let's look to what God said and see what he is promising us. The scripture warns us about vain imaginings, as the old King James phrase to describe it. You know, you and I as redeemed believers are not exempt from vain imaginings. In other words, there's things we want to be true. And we'll just want them to be true so much that eventually we think they are true. That's why we need each other. You know, as we iron sharpens iron kind of thing. You know, I want this to be true, and I'm starting to meet with a brother and say, I don't think God's word says that. Oh, but I need that sort of message, don't you? And it's like, wait a second, where do you see God saying that? The, the issue here isn't how intensely you would like it. Where do you see God's word saying that? You say, oh, well, I guess I need to study this more. And then, reluctantly, depending on how stubborn you are, over time, you look and look and look and look and look and look and say, well, I guess God's word isn't saying that. Uh, great if we get to that conclusion quick, but, hey, I know the truth about me, I know the truth about you. It takes time sometimes to be willing to do what is clear from God's word. Well, at any rate, we look to God's word for those precious and great promises. We don't look to what people say. We don't look to people's books. And most especially in our era, we don't look to any visions anybody has. There's a lot of people build their whole understanding of Christianity around somebody's vision. Hey, brothers and sisters, you might just as well be a Hindu or a Buddhist if you're going to build life around somebody's vision. Build it around revelation, what God propositionally has determined of his breathed-out word to make available to us. Build your life there. Now, the other thing I want to say about this is preliminary, 
as we decide, as we should, to look solely here to find truth instead of other places, as we do that, let's remind ourselves that these promises, precious and great, are only available to us because of who God is and what he's like. What do I mean by that? It's his glory and goodness, is the way the verse puts it, that gives us these precious great promises. He didn't make these promises to me because I'm so deserving. He doesn't make these promises to me because I got a bunch of people praying with me about it. So he decided, well, I guess I'm leveraged out here. I got to give these promises to that boy. Uh, No, no, it's God's very nature. When God breathes out his truth, it's part of the God who is the word. It's part of who he is. Theologically, God is a revealing God. Not a concealing God. Does he reveal everything? Well, no, because we couldn't understand it anyway. But he reveals what we could understand. That's what makes him different than the mystery gods that people live with. He he is a revealing God. It's part of who he is. He reveals it. The promises rely on who God is, not what we are and not what we try to do. We don't leverage promises. We learn promises. We learn the promise. We say, well, I didn't deserve that, Lord. God says, yeah, I know. Same with salvation, by the way. I didn't deserve that. Yeah, I know. While you were yet a sinner, sent my son to die for you. Uh, Well, I say these things simply because so much is said contrary to that, or implied contrary to that, that sometimes we just need to state it. Say, wait a second, here's the truth about it. Now, notice he says these promises are something he has granted to us. The word granted, as it's translated in the ESV, uh, is a translation in the, in the manuscripts of the Greek word doriomai, which is the idea of giving in the sense of a donation, an endowment. Uh, That's how the Greek would understand that. What's that mean? When I get into this, when I'm reading it, when I'm looking at it, God says, I want you to look at this and realize it's a donation to you. This This is an endowment that I've given you. Much better endowment, by the way, than any money he could give you, any estate he could give you, God's endowed you with his truth. It's a gift from him. A donation. A donation of truth in the face of error. A donation of light in the midst of darkness. And a donation of transforming power in the face of lifeless words. Because that's all the world has is lifeless words. But these are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God says, I'm going to take this, I'm endowing you with it. I'm I'm donating it to you. You say, wow. And it's part of my nature as God to be a giver. Isn't it wonderful? That's part of the very attribute of God, one of the attributes of God, one part of his very nature, to be a giving God. It's deep within his heart to want to endow. He makes a lot of gifts, of which this broader body of 
uh, promises, great and precious, are just a picture. Think, think how 2 Corinthians 9 puts it in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. After talking in two chapters in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, all about stewardship and helping, he culminates it all by saying, now that we're talking about gifts, let's thank God for his inexpressible gift. The Lord Jesus Christ, look what he's done. Everything we talk about, about how we should use our funds and try to help one another, it's important to learn those things, but all of that pales in significance to what God's already done for us. And the more we hang on to what he's done, the less issue stewardship becomes for us because it's, well, it's his. What the heck, I'll give that money. I've already got the greatest endowment, <laughs> the Lord Jesus. Or think how, sec- how Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 put it, where it uses that word gift. It says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of your work, so that no one could boast about it. Or, consider Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The God we serve is a giving God. He can't give salvation to those who do not repent and believe in the gospel. But that doesn't change the fact that his nature is to be a giving God. That's why he gave his only son to die for us on the cross. So this God, whose very nature is to be giving, says, I'm expressing that very nature in giving you precious and very great promises. Are you taking advantage of the transforming power of the donation of living and precious promises? It's possible to be a person who's taken the gift of salvation and as a result has received the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit and not be benefiting from the gift of the precious and very great promises. Very possible for that to be the case. Sobering, isn't it? And yet, that's the reason he's challenging us about it. He said, I'm endowing you with this. Well, I'm not too interested in that, Lord. Well, he says, these promises that I've endowed you with, I want you to keep reminding yourself that they're precious and very great. Notice, I'm purposely choosing these words to describe them. God never chooses just randomly things. He always has a reason for every word he chooses. He says, I want you to understand, I look at these these promises, they're precious and they're great. Do you see the promises of God in his revelation to us as precious? The Greek word is timios. The idea of something that's of great price, costly, and therefore valued because we see them as such a great price. I was thinking Psalm 119, verse 103, puts it, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver that's been refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Yeah, that's getting close to seeing it as precious. <laughs> uh, or... Psalm 19.10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's what precious means. 
so precious to me. And so here's the question again I pose to you. How precious, and only you can answer that, but how precious are God's promises to you? I mean, you can read some of these things, not just in the Psalms, but I gave you some examples. I mean, you can read those, and you can even say, amen, I think they're true. But that doesn't mean, amen, they're true for me. Uh, They accurately reflect where I'm at. And God says, I want them to accurately reflect about it. I want you to say, how sweet your words are to me, Lord. How sweet they are. I want you to be able to say, these are pure words. These are like silver refined in the furnace. Or, I desire them more than gold. God wants that to be true. And by the way, the answer to this, how precious are they to you, is proven not by what you say you feel about them, by what you do with them. That's how you prove it. Are they precious to me? Well, are you becoming a man or a woman of the word? That says they are precious to you. If you're not becoming a man or woman of the word, then no matter how many times you say, well, they are precious, they're not that precious, because you're not prioritizing becoming a man or a woman of the word. Now, all of us, let's be honest, will come before the Lord and say, they are precious, but Lord, they're not quite as precious as maybe they should be to me. And he says, okay, we're getting somewhere. You're being honest with me about it. We can go somewhere with that. You can come to me and say, Lord, I know in honesty they're maybe not as precious as they need to be. Help me so that they would become more precious. And he says, I can work with you on that. You know, I can, I can work with you on that. As long as you recognize that has to happen. He says, his, his promises are precious. Timios. But he also says, his promises are very great. Uh, the, the English in the English Standard Version, very great, translates the Greek word megos. And you should encounter, just think of mega and how many words include that in English. Uh, mega, mega. It means great, magnificent in the, in the broadest sense of the word. The word is mega. Uh, is that how you see God's word? Great. It's great. It's, it's my mega word. You know, this, this is the mega in my life. Magnificent. It's, it's mega is seen in different ways. For example, in James 1.21 it says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is mega because it can save us, you know. I mean, that's our, this is where we learn about the gospel, not just from wishful thinking, but because God has revealed the gospel to us. That's a pretty mega thing in my mind. I want to see it as mega. And then it's mega because in, second, in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 it says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, remember that's what we're talking about here, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then he ends with this phrase, which is at work in you. Ah, this is mega word because it works in me. It doesn't merely inform me. 
Men's words will inform me, or misinform me, perhaps more often. Uh, God's word informs, but more than that, it works in us. Think of Hebrews 4.12 in that regard. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the very division of our soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. That's working. I mean, that, that's working. Uh, or 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable to teach us, to reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Uh, that's working. The Word of God is mega, all right? Very great. (laughs) Very great. Because its power is such it can save us. And its power is such that it transforms us, modifies us, pierces us. Pierces us. And he says, I want you to understand that this Word, which is along with the indwelling Holy Spirit and a determination to actually build relationship and grow with the Lord is the third of the triad that's necessary to really grow in life and godliness. He says, I want you to understand all of these promises, these great and precious promises, are yours in Jesus Christ. Think how it puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God... Find their yes in Him. You mean those precious and great promises? Yeah, 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 yeah. They find their yes in Jesus. If He's my Savior, I got the yes in all of this. The precious and great promises all find their yes in Christ. Sort of makes you think maybe the scriptures are not randomly disconnected verses, but maybe have some theme running through them. Uh, And the answer is yes, they do, because they're breathed out from the God who is really there. Precious and great promises. He ends here by saying, there are, are two amazing things that will happen out of these precious and great promises as you respond to them properly. Number one, he says, you may become, so that through them, you may become first partakers of the divine nature. And then secondly, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So let's look at each of these. He says this, these precious and great promises, number one, have this outcome. They enable us to become partakers of divine nature. By the way, this particular verse is rampant in cult groups because it's ripped out of its context and mistaught. And you'll come to understand in a moment why it's done that way. But uh, this word partaker, what does that mean? It's a translation of the form of the Greek word koinonia. Translated fellowship, partnership, and so forth in the scriptures. The word koinonia literally means a joint sharer. Uh, It was used in the Greek language frequently to describe a marriage relationship where people were recognized as committing themselves to facing life together. They're no longer independent, isolated as an individual. Now they're jointly together facing life. God used that word 
to, as a core word throughout the scriptures, the New Testament, to describe to us what fellowship, partnership is all about. The core idea is that God says, we're now able to face life together with him. As if I was facing life married now over against not being married. You know, jointly facing life. We are now, as a product of salvation, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and so forth, combined with these precious and great promises, we are now in an active collaboration with God. A union with God. Facing life together in the midst of this fallen world and fallen bodies that we still struggle with, attacked by the enemy of our souls in this life. Isn't it a good thing that we have koinonia with him in the midst of all of that? And God says, yeah, it's a real good thing. And this is one of the fruits, koinonia with me. Now, by the way, this does not teach that becoming a partaker of divine nature means that somehow we're being transformed into gods. That's where the cults use this terminology to say, oh, well, God's thing is to make us gods. You know, uh, I could go over half a dozen cults and describe that to you, but of course, this, along with some other things, is at the heart of Mormonism's uh, distortion of Christianity to say, well, God's intention is you can become all gods, you know. And then you'll, have, you'll become your own God, and eventually you'll create your own world with spirit children and all kinds of other crazy things. have nothing to do with God's word, of course, but it's rooted there. Brothers and sisters, we are sharers in koinonia with the power of God. We are not sharers in his nature. We always will remain men and women. He will always remain God. We don't become sort of semi-God because, we, because we're redeemed. That's not what it means. In fact, that view is expressly forbidden throughout the scriptures. Presented as heresy. No, no, we, we don't become God. But praise God, we can live collaboratively with him. We can be partakers with him as we face what life is all about. To become a partaker means that through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, combined with our obedience to this transforming promise of God, His living word, we end up working together and facing life. We end up working together in koinonia in dealing with sin, dealing with a fallen world culture, dealing with satanic attack. We worked together with Him. Think of the end of chapter 5 of 1 Peter that we spent time on and the reality of that spiritual warfare. We work together. We work together, and as a result, we can have victory and fruit. We can have it. Think of how this this is framed in different places. I'll just give you one verse to help you see the framing of it that the Scripture gives us. In Colossians 1.29, Paul is speaking and he says, For this I toil, he's been talking about some ministry issues, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, which powerfully works within me. That is collaboration. Koinonia. Paul is toiling. That's not passivity, that's activity. 
But notice, it's a combined collaborative arrangement. He's toiling. He's toiling with all of God's energy and power that comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what it means to have koinonia with God. I'm so glad I got I'm glad we have koinonia together, or striving to have more of it, because God wants koinonia in the church. But brothers and sisters, I'm much more thankful that I have koinonia with God. Because I'd be in a real fix if I couldn't collaboratively face this world. And so would you. And God says, I'm not leaving you alone. Remember Jesus said, I won't leave you alone. (laughs) We collaboratively can face life. Pretty wonderful stuff, actually. And then he says the other part of his promises here is that they enable us to escape corruption in this world. Now, it might come as a discouraging uh, eye-opener to you that the world we live in is a bit of corruption. Uh, The scripture says, one of the first eye-openers is we discover our old body that we're still in fights us in doing what we want to do. You know, we want to do God's will. We see another law at work in the members of our body. And Paul says, who's going to deliver me from this body? And God says, eh, thanks be to God. First of all, there's no condemnation for you if you're redeemed. And secondly, Romans 8 then tells us about the Holy Spirit's enablement so that collaboratively we have an answer to the downward pull that we see in the members of our body. So the world we find ourselves in is corrupted, and it starts right here, not at the deepest level of us, because we've been made new creations. But nonetheless, our bodies... Has anybody discovered your body doesn't cooperate? Uh, with, well, I suspect you have. Uh, But then, I live in a culture that doesn't cooperate. The Bible describes it as world, cosmos. Uh, I live in a world culture that basically says, I don't want anything to do with God. I want us to be our own gods. I want us to control our own destiny. I want to live whatever way I want to live. Now, that's been my experience in the world culture I'm a part of. Maybe yours has been different. But that's basically, now after 75 years... For 75 years, that's been the way the world has been around me. So I don't have any great expectation. It's different in the upcoming years. I have no great utopian hopes for the human condition and its inherent goodness. You know, No, no. The world is corrupted. My body's corrupted. And Satan, as chapter 5 of 1 Peter told us, talks about like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. On top of it all, i got an enemy trying to... No, that's our circumstance. A triple temptation team. Now, I'd do miserably even if it was just one. But the fact of the matter is, I have no hope because it's a triple temptation team. If I'm left to my own strength, every day is going to be marked by guilt because I cannot be. But God says, well, let's, let's, let's face this in koinonia. Uh, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Uh, let's face the struggle with your flesh. Let's face the struggle with a fallen world. Let's face the struggle with the roaring lion. Let's do it collaboratively. Yes, you step out, you toil. Toil with all of my energy, which will so mightily work within you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a formula for success against the triple temptation team. 
Anything less than that means you're going to fail. And I will fail. And so God frames it this way. He says, here's my promise. My words will make it so that you can escape the corruption that is in the world. Not because you've created a nice Christian utopian sub-community to live in. No, no. Uh, but I can escape it collaboratively and acquainted with God. I can find victory in the midst of it. And eventually, I can escape it completely. Because I can be in his presence when he takes me out of this world. And then it's his plan to have a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, sin's gone, and won't be any corruption there. So I can escape it that way later. But now, I can escape the corruption that seems inescapable. I think that's why 1 Corinthians 10.13 underscores for us. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. And God's faithful. And he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the means of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. We already know we can't escape it in our own strength. So, so God, how's this escape work out? And he says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at this. And he begins to explain to us the collaboration needed for the redeemed believer. And we can move forward in that collaboration. Well, quick summary as the music team comes up to lead us in, uh, in our final song. God the Father, to his own and for his own glory and goodness, has given us everything we need. He's given us a solution to sin's accountability by sending Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit, which, gave, which imparts to us the power to defeat temptation. He's changed us at our very core by making us a new creation. He's given us the living and active biblical promises that work within us and transform us. And that's why verse 3 is accurate when it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life. And godliness. All things. So, if you're saved, surrendered, empowered, studying, and obeying, we can move ahead. You leave any of the pieces out, not going to get very far. Right? You might be redeemed, but you're not succeeding very well in achieving that life of life and godliness. Well, think about these things. May the Lord uh, give grace to us. And Lord willing, next time we'll move ahead into the next segment of First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1, which talks to us about the things that now, because these things we've been looking at are true, we can then build upon them, add to them is the way the ESV translates it. And we'll examine those things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could have this time together on this day, that we can be not only redeemed, but given everything we need for life and godliness in this life, all because of your own goodness and grace. Guide as we go through this day and this week that we might be a people who deepen in life and godliness through the koinonia with you. And we'll thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.